0: Hello, and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. So we've spoken before on this podcast about global supply chain bottlenecks, ships lined up at ports waiting to get in, the soaring price of putting anything on a container ship. And you maybe thought it wouldn't affect you, but things got a lot more serious in the past week, when we realised even the tomato sauce on your pasta could be hit by supply shortages in the coming months. We have that chilling story from the tomato fields of Italy in a few moments. We'll also hear how COVID-19 has turned Australia's attitude to immigration upside down from our economy reporter Down Under, Michael Heath. But first, a rare treat, a conversation I just had with one of the most respected economists in the world, Professor of the International Financial System at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, and now the Chief Economist of the World Bank, Dr. Carmen Reinhart. Um, Welcome to this session, and I'm delighted to see you again. Um, Thank you, Stephanie. It's an interesting time for the global economy because we have this, uh, quite a lot of what you might call upside surprises, certainly in the developed world, not just on the pace of vaccination in many countries, but also the strength of the recovery. And I see even in in your latest report, you see you're forecasting global growth this year, the highest we've had, uh, after a recession uh, for 80 years. So there's lots of good news there, but we are also conscious that the picture's is not so bright in the developing world. So how would you characterize the picture and maybe what are the surprises that you would say relative to what you might've thought
1: at the start of the year? So I think Stephanie, you you hit on the key, the key point. Without sand- sounding uh, cliche, I think the, the issue of a K-shaped Recovery is is very much on point. The surprises in the advanced economies have been mostly on the upside. And the substantive resources in terms of both fiscal stimulus, monetary policy, and more broadly than just monetary policy, financial uh, support and stimulus made the the faster than expected, faster than standard uh, recovery in the advanced economies. The emerging markets, for starters, uh, let alone the poorest countries, the developing countries don't have those kinds of resources. So in every check mark that I made about the advanced economies, Pretty much you can take off the check mark for for many of the developing countries. Many have had very limited, uh, very limited share of the population is, is yet to be vaccinated. Fiscal space, which was already strained in many developing and emerging market countries before COVID, isn't there to provide, you know, the big push, the big stimulus, the big transfers to households. And I'll conclude by saying that it isn't just about fiscal stimulus, monetary stimulus. For the first time in history, emerging markets during the crisis were able to do significant counter-cyclical monetary policy. However, that experience has already been cut short by very pronounced pickup in inflation. That divergence... Is is critical to the outlook. So the question you pose is, is a very relevant one, uh, you know, given the concerns that we're seeing about you know overheating in the US, the possibility, the big question mark is the pop in inflation temporary or more lasting. And you know, for the emerging markets and developing world they're glo- the, the very impacted by global conditions the inflation we're
0: seeing um certainly in the u s but uh we got we are seeing it globally. I think the core cpi globally is rising at its fastest pace in in more than twenty five years so how do you how do you view that? Do you think it's cause for fear or 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 celebration given how much we've struggled to get inflation rates up in many developed countries
1: so you know, I, I think for the, the celebration side, uh, you, you immediately have to think of Japan, right? I mean, they, they, they've had decades of first deflation and then undershooting. But before we celebrate too much, I think the question that remains to be sorted out is how much of this is a temporary blip and how much of it sticks I think the concerns about sticking, I would I would characterize as threefold. Uh, the first one is we don't know what the supply shocks, the lasting supply shocks. COVID has done and continues to create a lot of variation from the normal trade patterns in, in supply chains. Transport costs have been doing strange things. Uh, the second part, of course, is the monetary stimulus at the global level on the scale, and so those two factors, supply side, uh, the multiplier effects of the of the monetary easing, and the fact that it's a global shock. Two thousand eight, two thousand nine was not two thousand eight, two thousand nine was a a crisis in about a dozen advanced economies, but not global. I think those three factors raise concerns that the the I'm not saying we're off to the races or anything like that, but that I think that the there are there is cause to be concerned that a it's more it the inflation pickup has uh, more of a, a lasting component than just transitory rebound slash overheating.
0: But it's interesting you say concern. I mean, as you said at the start, there's not just in Japan, uh, many central banks around the world have struggled to get to meet their inflation targets, actually, to get up to their inflation targets, not least the European Central Bank in the last few years. If, we mo- if we're if we moving from a world that we've had for 10 or 15 years where the average inflation in the developed world has been, say, 1%, and we're moving to a world where it's more like two, two and a half, even three, um, is that... Is that really cause for concern? I mean, is your concern from the fact that you you think that we we would struggle to control that because it would certainly give policymakers a bit more room for maneuver than they've had uh,
1: stephanie if if what you describe is 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 the the issue at heart, then indeed it wouldn't be a concern, but I think let's not flatter ourselves in in terms of the the what how how precise Lee, can can central banks really hit the nail as as we've highlighted? It's been undershooting for a decade. And it, it, if it's nice, well behaved, very moderate, you know, drift upward, what's the what's the big deal? the the The, the, the bigger deal is that the the a sufficiently big spike that lasts for sufficiently long would I think impact inflationary expectations in a in in a way that you know inflation expectations have been really anchored uh, for very many many years now, and um, then you 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 know then you get into uh, perhaps inflation rates that are uh, beyond those that are desired uh, in the advanced economies. One of the things we're seeing with a pop in inflation, especially in many emerging markets, but not exclusively, are big increases in food prices. Food prices account for the largest share of the CPI basket in the poorer countries and even much more so in the poorer households. That is a factor. The fact that it is regressive on top of a regressive shock like COVID um, is, is in and of itself a source of concern.
0: Yes, the other big change in the last couple of years, particularly, associated with COVID, which maybe we can't quite decide is a good thing or a bad thing, or maybe is a good thing and a bad thing, is this very different uh, attitude towards very large deficits and public borrowing in the developed world. We had seen obviously large deficits in the past, but there's been a there's been an embrace of very high deficit spending uh, by developed economies that we've not seen in quite this way before. You know, Would you say that is overall something we should applaud or be also concerned about?
1: Well, it has elements of both. I mean, I am no fan of debt, uh, but I was and have been a, more than 100% on board on the need to, during the COVID pandemic, to go in there big. I mean, you know, uh, it's... The point that this was akin to a war and therefore you react with that kind of, of, of stimulus is, is important. Now, does that mean that I think everything is very benign and we no longer need to worry about debt or, or any uh, possible deleterious effects? No, I don't think so. But the previous question you had on inflation, also, uh, even though inflation is one way, eroding debt, if it also is associated with rising interest rates, then the calculus that people have been accustomed to in this low for a very long environment changes. So so I, I, I would not, de- you know, de- declare a victory on the issue. And I have one I had one final question which is we obviously
0: have had uh, a lot of focus on the G7 in the last week. There was much talk, including from the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund about pushing for uh, commitment from the international community to make sure that you had as many people vaccinated as possible in the developing world in everyone's interest. What we got instead of the 50 billion that uh, the IMF thinks would be needed, uh, we got somewhat less than a billion. In committed, and we're potentially looking at a very low vaccination rate in the developing world by the end of the year. Was that a failure of leadership? The G7, were you disappointed?
1: Absolutely. It's disappointment, not just in terms of the scale, but also speed is an issue here. Uh, we really are, you know, running a race against. Variants and it, it, virus variants, and so on. That that the delay, for example, we, we the World Bank supports very much. The uh, if advanced economies were to send surplus uh, vaccine sooner rather than later, again the issue of timing. So it's a step in the right direction, but I think given. This, the, the scale of the problem, I think, um, more and r- more rapidly, you know, needs to be done.
0: Carmen Reinhardt, Vice President and Chief Economist of the World Bank. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Now, to the list of casualties in the great global supply chain, up, we can now add Italian tomatoes, which are rotting in the fields, we're told, instead of making their way into tins of pasta sauce. Well, our Italy economy reporter, Alessandra Migli- Migliaccio, is here to fill you in on this, let's face it, deeply troubling story. Alessandra, how are all these tomatoes rotting? Where are the tins?
2: Right, that's exactly the issue. There are plenty of uh, the the tomatoes, the basic product, but you don't have the tins because uh, the Chinese economy is absolutely booming. And what they need to make the tins um, is these particular sheets of metal that are missing. Basically, um, the Italian producers are telling us that they're asking when the deliveries will come and the deliveries are not coming. And there's no end in sight, apparently, to the problem. The companies, uh, both Italian companies and foreign companies in India, have said that they can't guarantee anything. And the issue is that this type of product needs to be canned within 36 hours after picking. So once you've lost the time, then you you just have to leave them. And it's not like I was hoping, oh, maybe I'll have cheap tomatoes in the market. But no, they they will leave them in the fields because it's not economically convenient to to actually send them to market. So that's uh, the unfortunate problem.
0: And that, I mean, that's the heartbreaking bit. And it's, it's 5 million tons of processed tomatoes. I mean, Italy is one of the biggest producers, right?
2: That's right. Italy is the number two, sometimes number three producer, along with China. And the biggest producer is California, uh, with a 10 million. Um, but the thing is that California can also put them in cartons. California can put them in tubes, because California is not obsessive, like us Italians, about their tomatoes. And therefore, uh, they're all right with paste. They're all right with other kinds of products that are not as fresh, that are differently made, basically.
0: See, the things that you learn on Stephanomics, <laughs> the key diff- key national differences in how we like to package our, our tomatoes. But I mean, obviously, and people who listen to this podcast know, this is part of a broader problem that we have seeing these, um, I call them supply chain snarl-ups, but we're seeing the price of things uh, soaring in key areas, components, and also just an inability to get things. I noticed, and it's not just pasta sauce, guys. I noticed the owner of Burger King and Popeyes uh, had an intern, that's Restaurant Brands International. Um, We had a report based on an internal uh, study that they'd done talking about the soaring price of beef, mayonnaise, bacon. In fact, it said price inflation across the protein market complex has far exceeded even our greatest um, forecast. So this is this is a global issue, isn't it, Alessandra?
2: Definitely, supply constraints are really, really bad everywhere. One of the issues I was saying is is, is China because. They are, uh, for example, the steel is is all going to China, so there are just issues about packaging. But as you as you just said, there are issues about other things as well. We know that um, there are no boxes right now because of all the Amazon orders. So there's just a series of very strange things that are happening. Y- you will have trouble finding boxes because they've been using too many. Um, you know, last year the issue was people; it was workers that couldn't get to places, so we were having issues. The tomatoes were rot- rotting in the field because you couldn't get the people. Uh, but now it's actually the materials and the things themselves and you know there's container shortages there's hoarding mentality still i mean there's a lot of products that you know, especially things like tomatoes not to go back to that but <laughs> that people were hoarding because they keep for a long time and that just made everything much worse so it's a global phenomenon it will take a while yes
0: and I mean, I noticed that we, we had a big piece on this actually a few weeks ago. And I like the way that they captured it because it was talking about how, you know, last year it was consumers that were hoarding their toilet roll and their tomato sauce and whatever else. And now it's companies worldwide that are effectively hoarding materials and making things worse because they're worried about these um, supply chains. Uh, as, you, as you've been saying, this is obviously one of the factors that's pushing up inflation. But we are hopefully going to see a shift. Uh, over the next few months, as things open up, people won't be buying quite so much on Amazon, so much stuff. They'll be buying more services. They'll be going out uh, more.
2: Right. It's, it's almost like water being released, you know, after uh, there's a dam that's been breaking. And so eventually things will calm down and we'll go backwards somewhat. So, I mean, that's the theory, at least. Uh, I know there are other theories about the same, but the theory is that there will be an uptick and then things will go a little bit more back to normal.
0: In the, in the meantime, uh, we shall probably we have to hold on to our pasta sauce. Alessandra uh, Migliatio, thank you very much. Thank you. For some years now, Australia has been conducting an extreme experiment with high immigration, welcoming inflows of people for a prolonged period that dwarf anything attempted elsewhere. Now, that flow helped to fuel economic growth. To such an extent, the country didn't have a recession for 30 years until COVID-19 finally did it in. But now, after 12 months of closed borders, politicians and the public seem to be rethinking the so-called Big Australia approach. We thought there might be some lessons in Australia's experience for other countries grappling with the difficult politics and economics of immigration. So we asked Australia economy reporter, Michael Heath, to give us his take.
2: If you're a visitor in this country, um, it is time, as it has been now for some while, and I know many visitors have, to make your way home um, and to ensure that uh, you can receive the support. That that was Prime
3: Minister Scott Morrison last year as COVID scale became clear. It sounded innocuous, but to many temporary visa holders hoping to become Australian, it felt like betrayal. Australia has long been a laboratory for immigration, managing the politics of a highly sensitive issue that raises questions over identity and culture. But in recent times, its system has started to go astray as the country loaded up on temporary migrants while offering limited places for permanent residents. Those migrating down under have typically done so in two steps, enter on a temporary visa and then apply for a permanent one under a point system that ranked people's skills, age and so forth. Those points can rise or fall depending on labour demand. But lately they've been rising as permanent visas are directed toward entrepreneurs and high flying professionals. That's left lots of would be Australians disenchanted.
4: Actually, we were still in school when the scores started rising. So we were like, you know, we, were, we knew that we have to stay in school for two years with my classmates.
3: That was Arkos Percy, who, with wife Marina Arg, arrived in Melbourne from Budapest in 2017. He, a former chief financial officer at the Hungarian State Opera. She, a communications specialist. They're the sort of people Australia once courted. But they've been in limbo since ARCOS paid to do a master's degree in accounting, a profession he was told was in demand. Now he's not sure he'll have enough points to stay permanently.
4: As I mentioned, it was 65. When we arrived, it was 70. And it went on 70, 75. And we just... Calculated that no way we can get there. So it was like if this, if this trend continues, uh, then we, we won't have a chance. And none of my classmates actually got their residency.
3: After four years, he and Marina have given up and are headed to Canada, which offered them permanent residency. Australia's system today seems less fair than its original, 75 years ago.
4: In near Albury, they're making new Australians. 840 people from the Baltic states are going to school here, for Australia's migration policy has determined that never again shall our new citizens be forced to fend for themselves.
2: We who were driven from our homes are overjoyed to be welcomed as new Australian citizens. Those horrible years now seem like a nightmare. Many of us have lost all their relatives...
3: Until the end of World War II, Australia's population was drawn almost exclusively from Britain but after narrowly escaping invasion by Japan, Australia broadened its horizons. In the post-war period, it initiated mass migration under its rubric of populate or perish. Australia opened its doors to European refugees. Jock Collins is a professor at UTS in Sydney and has studied immigration for almost half a century.
4: Australia is, is one of the uh, the great immigration nations of the world. In the post 45 period, after the Second World War, there were only four countries that became settler immigration countries, Australia, US, Canada and New Zealand. And as a proportion of the population, we've had a much bigger migration program than any of the other countries.
3: Australia was, however, determined to preserve its British character. It set up the £10 POM program, whereby the government paid most of the fare for Brits to come to Australia. That white Anglo-Saxon Australia is now a distant memory. Today, half of Australia's 25 million people are either born overseas, with Asia now dominant, or have a parent who was. Almost one in three are first generation. Here at Sydney's fish market, many stalls set up by Greek and Italian families in the 1960s have now been bought out by Chinese families. Like each wave of migrants, they bring a new style and touch these days an awesome variety of sushi is available and products are packed with immense care, just as their heavily Asian clients like it. Hi, Hi. All, all closed? Ah. Oh, it's okay. The last vestiges of the racist 1901 White Australia policy were finally abolished by the Whitlam Labor government in 1973, but it took a bit longer to mean something.
4: If, if it was up to you now, which country would you head for? I think all the us in the boat now want to go to Australia.
1: Well, the dominant feeling was that we had to give these people a home, especially people who had been associated with either the Australian embassy or the
3: Australian... That last voice was Conservative Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser, who opened the door to tens of thousands of refugees from Indochina after the Vietnam War. We were
4: leading the world in the 80s and 90s, when we were sort of introducing multiculturalism and that sort of settlement policy.
3: Jock Collins again.
4: There was a time in which Australia was the model that other world countries looked at, particularly as other countries in Europe and elsewhere, discovered immigration was an important thing.
3: In 2001, facing a tight election and with rising numbers of people arriving illegally by boat from Indonesia, Conservative Prime Minister John Howard deployed the Navy to stop them. He politicised border control and then rode it to victory. Ironically, that tough border stance allowed his government to ratchet up legal immigration. It was needed as Australia's economy boomed in response to China's demand for minerals. Between the second half of 1991 and the end of 2019, as Australia's economy set a developed world record for a stretch without recession, its population increased by 45%. The new arrivals and the demand for housing and goods helped the economy surge. The nation had found a sweet spot. The point system attracted smart, educated, younger people from across the globe. Meanwhile, its education industry, the country's fourth largest export, also offered a path to permanent residency for talented students. That appealed to Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who argued for something similar once the UK left Europe. Australia's draconian response to illegal entrance by boat seemed to appeal to President Donald Trump. In fact, Australia is two-faced on immigration, exceptionally severe toward illegal entrants, while generally welcoming toward legal arrivals. The Grattan Institute is critical of the government's approach in a new report. Gone is the time-tested policy of courting young, skilled migrants best placed to succeed down under. Instead, two-fifths of permanent visas now go to entrepreneurs who've brought negligible investment and an untested high-flyers program.
4: When this whole crisis started, you know, the whole government and everyone pretend that they have nothing to do with the immigrants.
3: That was Arcos Percy, again.
4: And everyone is here just because they, they have nothing else to do. So it's like they have no, no responsibility over this, I don't know, two million temporary visa holders who, who, who live here and who have a life here.
3: As Australia moves on from the pandemic, its reputation as a melting pot for the world is changing and the land down under is grappling with the same immigration challenges as the rest of the world. For Bloomberg News, I'm Michael
1: Heath.
0: Well, that's it for this episode of Stephanomics. I'll be back next week with a lot more from around the world. And remember, in the meantime, you can get a lot more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics by following at economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson, with special thanks to Dr. Carmen Reinhardt, Alessandra Miliaccio, and William Heath. Mike Sasso is executive producer of Stephanomics, and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy.